0: I'm Jeff Hakeem, founder of MCM Wealth. Welcome to our podcast today. We do these podcasts to advise families, business owners, and health professionals. Our approach is to build customized portfolios for each client while offering comprehensive financial planning services. Thank you for joining us today on this educational journey designed to protect your future.
1: Hello, and welcome to the MCM Podcast. I'm Wendy McConnell. Today, we have Max Fryer, a managing partner from Calder Capital. And today, we're going to be talking about selling a business and how it requires making a market. Hi, Max, and welcome.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Oh,
1: we appreciate you being here. So when it comes to this making a market, what are we referring to?
2: I guess the best way to answer that would be a lot of folks spend a lot of time preparing to sell their business, preparing the financial performance to be solid, You know, preparing their management team, diversifying their customers and, and their product and service offering. And sometimes they don't think about who is going to be representing them and, and what kind of their go-to-market mechanism is going to be. So the reason it's so important is that statistically, what we have found is that Out of every 10 prospective buyers that expresses interest, ones that go through a qualification process, ones that sign a confidentiality agreement, only about 10% of those are going to have a serious motivation to go forward with that and potentially make an offer. So the whole idea behind creating a market is that if you want to foster an environment of competition and multiple offers you really have to be out in front of a large pool of prospective buyers and having one buyer puts you in a very difficult position when it comes to negotiating because you don't have any options to fall back on if that buyer decides to go away. So one thing we focused on for the past 10 plus years is to Use all the tools we can to get as much confidential interest in business opportunities to really maximize the offers, maximize the negotiating leverage, and you know, ultimately find somebody that's going to have the best offer, uh, most secure deal structure, and feel like the best fit for the future of that business.
1: And Calder Capital is this is something they focus on, correct?
2: Yes. So we are very focused. We only offer buy side and sell side representation. So that means we are contracting with sellers of businesses to go find prospective buyers for them. And we're uh, contracting with prospective buyers who are looking for kind of targeted acquisitions. And we go out and we search for those, for those folks. We also do a lot of valuation work because folks need to understand what to expect in terms of valuation. And that's, that's on the buy and sell side. But beyond that, we're really not doing any other type of service in the realm of mergers and acquisitions.
1: How many locations do you have? Is there like one place? Like, tell me a little bit more about the organization of
2: it. Sure. So we're headquartered in Grand Rapids. We have nine other locations presently, mostly in the Midwest. We operate centrally from an administrative and financial analysis perspective. So our core team here is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we do all of our valuation work. We create all of our confidential marketing materials and we kind of create all of our uh, confidential marketing campaigns from this office, uh, but we have advisors that are in other places around the United States that have client relationships, and they're the boots on the ground. So they're doing the facilitation of meetings and negotiations between uh, buyers and sellers.
1: What makes Calder different from other MA firms?
2: I would say there are two primary differentiators. One would be a dedication to creating a large market. As I mentioned, you know, one out of 10 buyers is actually going to take an opportunity seriously. It's really difficult up front to know who that is because when a buyer inquires about a, a particular offering or says they're interested, you know, it's hard to, to decipher at that moment are they really serious about it, right? And so One thing we've done is we've invested heavily in automation in a CRM. And so we have a lot of automated communications, follow-ups, reminders that go out to prospective buyers. And the reason we do this is because we know that nine out of 10 of them aren't going to actually move forward. And so we'd rather have technology following up with them than taking a person's time. Our time is all limited and when you're an advisor and you're running four, five, six, transactions, you don't have enough time in a day to be sending emails to 300 people and making 50 follow-up phone calls. And so we we let the technology do a lot of that. And we know that the buyers that are sincerely interested are going to respond to us. What that allows us to do is market very aggressively for prospective buyers. And that is a differentiator. You wouldn't necessarily think it would be a differentiator, but what you see amongst most of our competition who do things very manually is that they're trying to pare down their marketing because they don't have the bandwidth to be responsive to a big pool of buyers. And I have just never felt like that is serving the client the right way. So uh, for the past 10 plus years, we've stretched ourselves very hard to keep our marketing efforts very aggressive and then build our team as needed and build our infrastructure you know, to be responsive to that. And I would say the second differentiator is that we have a very robust buy side service offering. So it's very common amongst M&A firms and investment bankers to represent sellers for sale. It is less common that they represent buyers. And so we have a team that will take a buyer's criteria and they will go out to owners of businesses that are not listed for sale and directly contact them and try to get one-on-one dialogue going with our buy-side clients. And I think the reason you don't see it very often is because it takes a lot of cold calling. It takes a lot of research. It takes a lot of cold email outreach. And uh, that's part of the culture of our team is just gritty and we'll do the hard work.
1: When a business owner comes to you wanting to sell a business, what does that look
2: like? The most important thing initially to understand is you know, what is their motivation, right? So just getting to know them, talking to them, understanding the business, becoming familiar with it, trying to figure out what's driving them. Most often what's driving them is that they've tried to sell to someone internally. They've tried to pass along to maybe a son or daughter. They've been approached by a buyer and it hasn't worked. And they're kind of getting tired, uh, oftentimes looking to retire, burned out, and they're, they're looking for a successor that they don't know. And so Once we kind of have that initial conversation, it really comes down to doing a, I guess I'd say a market informed valuation analysis of the business. And I say market informed because there are a lot of business appraisers out there with lots of credentials, but they've never actually sold a company. And so when they do a valuation, it can oftentimes deviate into theory, and oftentimes be very detached from the realities of the marketplace. So we probably do upwards of 150 valuations a year, and we are looking at those valuations from a buyer and from a lender's perspective. And we're doing that because that's what's going to happen when they go out to the market. And we want to make sure to sit down with them before they're our client and go into an extreme amount of detail in terms of how is a buyer going to look at your business What are offers likely to look like? What's the deal structure likely to look like? Where do we think the buyers are going to come from? Where are we going to go to find these buyers? And only if that seller is comfortable with that conversation, do we want to move forward. I would say this is in somewhat contrast to other folks in the industry who have their clients sign contracts with them without doing a lot of this upfront work to make sure that their expectations are aligned with what reality is.
1: What is a common challenge your team faces in the initial stages of working with a business owner?
2: Two come to mind. One is a, it's, a, it's a correct stereotype in that most business owners overvalue their company. So they, they don't really understand what drives value. And they they tend to assign a lot of value to, well, my customer relationships, my patents. And the truth is the value of the company is 99% in the earning streams that it produces. So, if the company is not profitable, buyers lose a lot of incentive to want to look at it. And you know, lenders are oftentimes their hands are tied, right? Because they they need cash flows to fund the debt, right? And so, going through that valuation analysis up front and showing them what drives value and dispelling some of the myths that things like patents necessarily translate into dollars they can but oftentimes they don't making sure that we kind of bust those myths aside uh, that is one challenge that we we want to get over right away and it's sometimes a significant challenge that we have and I'd say about 40 percent of the time after we do the valuation the valuation client decides that they're going to hold on to the business for a longer period of time so uh you know that is one challenge that we face.
1: And is that because it's not what they thought it was going to be worth?
2: Yeah. And I think on that, they they haven't really done a lot of the planning that they need to do, right? And so working with a wealth advisor to really understand what your situation is, what type of resources you need to spend the next 20 or 30 years of your life, that is something that surprisingly few owners do. And I think another thing, there's a lot of owners run a lot of personal expenses through their company, and they don't really understand like what their personal budgetary needs are. Like Once the business is sold, they don't have those profits from the company to rely on. The second challenge beyond valuation expectations that we encounter are business partnerships. We are very wary when, when approached by business partners about wanting to sell um, and it's not that we assume that their intentions are, are not um, correct, but it's that oftentimes you'll have one partner that is starting to think about retirement or is burning out and they they want out, they, they want to be out of the business. The second partner does not want to spend the resources to to buy them out. And so they go along with the process but they haven't really spoken up about what's important to them. So we make sure when dealing with business partners to the extent we can, that they're on the same exact page and they're all involved in the conversations up front because we want to make sure that they're aligned. It's been common where we've been close to the closing table and suddenly one of the partners who hasn't said very much starts to say a lot. So (laughs) those are things to be wary of up front.
1: Yeah, that's a problem. So when a business owner is indeed ready to sell, what makes an ideal buyer candidate?
2: That's going to depend on that owner's priorities, right? And some owners, they see money and that's fine. That's what's important to them is, is maximizing as much in terms of proceeds as they can. And so the ideal buyer in that instance is the one willing to come with a lot of cash and a lot of security in the deal structure, and give them the highest price. I would say more often than not, the fit and feeling that fit for the continuity of the business ends up being an extremely important piece of the process. So, you know, ideally you're looking for a buyer that is going to pay a, a fair price with a secure deal structure, and secure means you know minimal seller financing and offer that owner a sense that they're the right steward of the business for the future. And they'll take care of the customers. They'll take care of the employees. Many owners feel like their employees are their family. And it makes sense. They've been with them for decades. And they have relationships. And they know their spouses. And they know the children. And they've gone to sporting events. And they they do not want to look back and feel like they did a disservice to their people.
1: How do you bring willing buyers to the transaction?
2: Okay, so one way to bring buyers to a business opportunity is to do confidential advertising. So put together a blind teaser and use that teaser to send it out to prospective buyers or place that teaser uh, in places where buyers will see it. As an example, there's a company called Axial, and you can send your teaser to Axial and they will distribute it to their buyer network confidentially. Um, and so they'll they'll help you kind of drum up interest. So that like advertising is one way to draw buyers to an opportunity. Another way is to do research, right? You, you can research folks that have made acquisitions in the space and and buyers who are interested in making acquisitions in the space, and you can reach out to those buyers. And I'd say the third way, uh, and this is one way where we built a a competitive advantage over the past ten plus years, is make sure to every buyer that you interact with understand their criteria, save it into like a CRM, and then remarket to them. So over the course of our business, we've built a hundred, you know, our, our CRM is in the hundreds of thousands of prospective buyers. Uh, and professional advisors that when we have an opportunity, we can match it to folks in our CRM, or we can send it to the entire CRM on a confidential basis, and we get a ton of interest from that. So those are really the three ways to find buyers.
1: What role does Calder play in the sifting through interested buyers to find as many of the matching characteristics to the ideal?
2: We do not want to waste our time or our client's time. So we've used technology. As I mentioned, the technology goes a long ways in terms of just doing follow-up with prospective buyers. And that follow-up can be from signing a non-disclosure agreement. All buyers have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And it would be unwise for us to dedicate human resources to following up with 9 out of 10 parties who are not interested in signing a non-disclosure agreement, for example. So we have technology follow-up with emails and text messages. When a buyer expresses interest, they have to sign that NDA. If they don't sign it, we're going to follow up with them five or six times. If they're not willing to sign it after that, they probably aren't that interested. That's the way we look at it. The same thing when we send out confidential materials to approve buyers. So the advisor that's in charge of the transaction will send out those materials But we want to make sure that we have some assistance for that advisor following up with those materials. Sometimes people, sometimes buyers get materials and they don't have time to read them. Sometimes they get distracted. And so people need to be reminded about things and it doesn't always have to be a person doing it. That goes a long ways in terms of vetting interest. And then after that, it really comes down to are buyers willing to spend some time learning about the company and are they willing to have a call? Are they willing to ask thoughtful questions? And ultimately, are they willing to submit an indication of interest? It means a lot when a buyer is willing to put something in writing about their intentions to buy a company. And so we look at that as a very significant qualifying factor in who do we move forward with. I would say as a general rule, we're not interested in chasing buyers. If a buyer's not expressing and making overtures that they're sincerely interested in one of our opportunities, it's probably not going to happen.
1: So how much of the transaction structure is uh, standardized versus negotiated?
2: Uh, and that's a great question. And I would say there seems to be more nuance and creativity the larger the deal gets. And uh, so for example, if a transaction is less than 5 million more often than not, the buyer's using an SBA 7A loan. And with an SBA 7A loan, there tends to be a fair amount of standard structure there. And I'll give you an example. It would be very common in a $5 million or less transaction for the buyer to bring approximately 10% of the cash equity needed, the seller to finance 10% and the lender to supply the 80%. And so ultimately the seller would walk away with 90% of the, the purchase price at closing, and they would be taking payments in the form of a seller note over a certain period of time. There can be some variation depending on certain things, uh, but they'll be taking payments for that 10% over the, the balance of that. Now, when you get into larger transactions, you know that seven, SBA 7A loans like, aren't available for, there can be some more creativity. And some of that creativity can be you know, cash, seller note, earnouts. So earnouts are payments made based on future performance, a uh, rolled equity. So it, it's it's not uncommon for buyers for larger transactions. So for example, a, a 3 or $5 million EBITDA transaction, it's very common for a buyer to ask the owner to roll some equity or retain some ownership in that business. Post transaction, uh, there's other things that can affect deal structure and price, like customer concentration, and uh, you know, as well. But you never know what you're going to get. That's all I can say.
1: Right. What types of skills should a business owner's team possess?
2: When it comes to the team, the most important thing I can think about is that if for owners that are seeking to maximize their exit and make that exit as smooth and as fast as possible is having that team, having that management team in place. So, you know, if the owner is in charge of uh, or has all the sales relationships, does all the quoting, goes out on the floor and works on projects, does all the invoicing late at night, follows up with collections. I mean, it's gonna be really, if you just imagine that situation, y- y- there are gonna be few folks that are interested in paying to come over and to take that role that makes sense. That opposed to an owner who can spend three months in the tropics and they have a CFO. They have a general manager that are running their company, you know, running the core functions of their business. Uh, So really that idea that delegating and building a management team. I guess to look at it this way, if you could have two companies, one, you know, they both make a million dollars in profit, but on the the first company, if the owner's doing everything and has no layers of management, and on the second, the owner has three competent managers, chances are the one with the competent management team is going to fetch a higher price and a higher deal structure because there's just less risk in that continuity of that business.
1: That makes sense. So what's the most critical period in moving a transaction to a close?
2: Well, I mean, really is keeping momentum post signing a letter of intent, a letter of intent being a non-binding but sincere offer to acquire a company. Uh, There are a lot of things that have to happen once the LOI is complete or once the LOI is signed to move the transaction to the closing table it's important to keep momentum there. And that momentum is going to be momentum with a legal team, momentum with due diligence, momentum with a a lending team, momentum with the the buyer and seller themselves in terms of just keeping them engaged and keeping open communication and having folks understand what the next steps are and seeing those next steps happen. Deal fatigue is is a real thing. And if it sets in, it can be a death sentence for the for the transaction. And so very simple things like structured weekly calls with task lists so that folks that are responsible for certain things know what they're responsible for and know that they're going to be held accountable at that next meeting can really go a long ways to get the deal to the closing table.
1: Okay. Well, this has been very enlightening. I thank you for all of this information. It's eye-opening. So um, Max, tell us how we can get in touch with you if we have more questions.
2: Uh, sure, probably the best way would be via email. And just because if I get it, it will usually sit there until I have a chance to respond to it if I can't respond to it right away. And that's versus a text message or call, which can somehow fade away sometimes. So the email is max at com. That's C-A-L-D-E-R-G-R.com. Uh, you could also get a hold of me on LinkedIn, Um, although I do not check that as often.
1: Okay, thank you for joining us today and thank you for listening. Please like, follow and share this podcast. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell.
0: This is Jeff Hakeem again. Thank you for listening to this episode of our MCM Wealth Podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified of new episodes as they become available also please visit our website at www.mcmwealth.com or call me on my direct line at 415-299-6574 so you and i can have an initial discussion we look forward to learning about you